new episode, Don, and it's a it's a timely topic. It is a timely topic. We we have to to talk some more about ISO ten nine nine three dash eighteen two thousand twenty um, because it's it's out there now. It's out there. Everything's been shaken up. So we got a NAMSA colleague to join us here. We specifically are addressing some questions in this episode from the webinar that that Don did for us a few days ago. So listen to this podcast. And if you'd like to listen to the webinar, you can go directly to it at www.namsa.com slash webinar episode. So let's do this, Don. All right, let's go. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to Biocompatibility, everyone. We are uh, recording a special episode today, Don. That we are. That we are. It seems like uh, the what just happened here in the month of January requires a special episode, I think. Yeah, the earth shook and the industry was turned upside down on January 15th with the issuance of ISO 10993-18-2020. Everybody seems to be a bit, I won't call it a panic, but maybe we're, we're all just kind of scrambling to understand this thing. I like the concept of awestruck. We're just kind of staring. Awestruck, I think that's, <laughs> that is probably, that's probably a pretty good way to look at it. So we had, um, for those of you that are listening to us later or off time, this is around the, I don't know what, it's February 6th, 2020. And we had a webinar uh, a couple days ago that that Don uh, did for us. And we had so much, I'll call it attention uh, during that webinar. And we had a lot of questions that we thought it was worthy of doing a special podcast recording to answer some of those questions we didn't get to during that webinar. Yeah. And, and with that said... Because, you know, nothing else because of the, the, the time that we try to keep ourselves to, we, we certainly won't be able to go over every question that everybody asked. Uh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Great, great point. We're just good. <laughs> we, we just kind of quasi random. We pulled out some of the items that, I don't know, kind of illustrated some interesting challenges, maybe potential struggles that people will be uh, thinking they are going to be confronted with as they try to use. Yep. In a lot of cases, what's the normative part of the standard? So, so that's where we're trying to focus. But we'll likely end up all over the place in terms of the standard for sure. Uh, of course, I'm sure we will. That's that's kind of uh, where we go. So, but what we do have today, it's not just us. We decided we would uh, coerce. I don't know, bribe, whatever it took for us to get a, a colleague a to join us today. Yeah. A little bit of both. Yeah. So yeah. we have our colleague Andy Wynn with us today. Hey, Andy, welcome to Biocompatibility. Hi, Sherry. How's it going? Excellent. Are you happy to be here? I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Don's bribe did help a little bit. but <laughs> We'll keep that one off the record. We'll keep that one off the record. Yeah, yeah. So Andy, um, Andy's been with NAMSA for almost 15 years. He has a lot of experience and specifically around this standard. So he's been a chemist and he is a chemist. Not that you were one. You still are. Um, I don't know. It's been a while. It's been a while. Okay. So you have that in your background anyway. He's a study director and uh, he's currently serves as a toxicologist in our biological safety team. So he's 
a board certified toxicologist as well among that um the other group that the group of toxicologists that we have Andy works with them writing assessments helping folks understand how to make sense of all this chemistry data when it comes to biological safety so he's what i call one of the interpreters when i break this down to my simple language is he interprets this chemistry data and makes it make sense for biological safety yeah and with that i, I would say you know just a you know why andy's name came to my mind when we were talking about these questions is that I mean, Andy and I so many times will just discuss the concepts of what's in these questions that, uh, you know, I reached out to Andy and started talking to him and I said, you know what, we should record this right now because, you know, I think we're saying something useful. So here we are trying to record here we what, are. We, what we talked about yesterday, but now we're going to do it today. So uh, here we are trying to say something useful. Is yeah, that what you're exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I try to do that on a daily basis. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'm going to let you guys I'm gonna let you guys say something useful. So, okay, so what we've done is we've taken our questions that we received, which everybody that attended the podcast, we wrote these up and we sent them out, questions and answers, but we love the discussion point of answering questions. So we've taken several, a few of the questions today. And we're just going to go through those. And so I'll just read some of the questions and then let you guys discuss it. And then next we'll move on. So I think the first question I wanted to bring up, which I think is, is interesting. So it's asking us to discuss how the standard discusses NVR to establish exhaustive condition and how it affects the AET calculation for analysis. Also, should the same replicates, single, duplicate, triplicate apply to NVR? So specific question around the non-volatile residue that um, is used. Yeah. So as, as with a lot of questions, there are a lot of little details sitting inside that question. <laughs> quite Right. Um, so I guess kind of picking them off one by one, the NVR, the specifics in this, in the standard on, on NVR and how to use it to establish exhaustive extraction. It just really says it's one way that you can define an exhaustive endpoint. I think the standard also reflects TOC, total organic carbon, as another way that you could do that. I personally haven't seen that one used before. And it also talks about using peak area to define exhaustive extraction as well. I have seen that done once that I can remember. With, with difficulty. With yes. difficulty, yes. Very well put, Andy. Because uh, Andy and I were involved in that one together way back when, when we saw that attempted. So I personal experience, I think... NVR is the most straightforward. I guess TOC could be just about as straightforward as NVR. Although TOC has its issues too, where it's mostly done with aqueous solutions. So if you were to do an NVR, you wouldn't be able to, to evaluate the ethanol or hexane or, or more nonpolar solvents and determine what the exhaust extraction would be. So NVR is, is all encompassing of, of all the different extracts. It's a very simple, uh, straightforward way to, to perform um, exhaust extraction endpoint determination. The problem comes with, with peak area uh, determination is that you have various peaks that you may see in, in GCMS or LCMS or headspace, and then you have to decide, you know, what's 10% of, of what peak I'm choosing, and how, how is that going to establish where the exhaustive endpoint is? Of the 50 different peaks, you know, how are you going to get to the level that's 10% of, say, you know, 1.5 micrograms or, or 10 micrograms of something you see in the initial extraction? So you get to the limit of 
not being able to see, you know, at such a low level and being able to pick which peaks you're trying to establish for determination of exhaustive endpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know, part of me always thinks that trying to that you do this using peak area is almost like a fool's errand because trying to hit a moving target, however you want to talk about it, you could have new peaks show up the next time you extract. Yeah. And then you and, can have artifacts and, yeah. um, different extractables that may come up in later extractions and you just you're chasing it you just keep extracting 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 until you get to the point where you know you're never going to find that that sweet zone that is the exhaustive extraction endpoint yeah and i mean so as andy said too i mean nvr is simple fairly straightforward but going back to the question the a the standard doesn't really give you specifics on how to do it i think they expect it to be a fairly straightforward experiment. You extract a device in a vehicle, you take that extract, reduce it to a residue, and, and you weigh it, and that's your NVR. You do it a second time on the same device, same vehicle, weigh the residue again, that's your next NVR. And, and you're trying to get to less than 10% of the first. So it's fairly straightforward. Granted, you have to do that in each vehicle, obviously that you're using in your experiment, but the standard doesn't go into a lot of details on how to use it to establish exhaustive endpoint, but it, it is, I think, a fairly simple, straightforward concept. Now, the other part of the question is, or another yeah, part that, of the question. Yeah, the magic question about replicates. Yeah, that was, well, I was well, like, well, don't well, forget that part. That's well, <laughs> how it affect. the second part is how, is, how does that affect AET calculation? I guess the simple question answer is- Oh, that part. It, right. It, NVR and AET, they, they're they separate things. Yeah, the NBA, NVR determination is basically just to uh, establish the uh, how long you should extract it or how many different replicates of extraction you should perform to get that 90% of the extractables over the lifetime amount of extractables as defined by the Part 18 standard. You, you would use that value to perform your analytical analysis, and then your AET is calculated um, based upon you know how much of the device you extract, um, the uncertainty factors, um, and then your, your dose-based threshold amount. Now there is an Annex E of the standard when it talks about AET, the, it does talk about how the number of extractions may impact the AET calculation. So I guess in that regard, the number of extractions needed to reach an exhaustive end part point are based on NVR. That could be a correlation to AET, but aside from that potential, it that's kind of where the correlation stops because it becomes more about you know the sensitivity of each assay that you use and making sure that they meet the AET that's specified. And I guess it would depend too if, if how the, the analytical lab analyzes it. If they were to pull the extracts and then reduce them down to whatever level needed for the AET, then you would only use that one number for your DBT. If you're going to analyze each replicate, not each replicate, but each uh, cycle. So if you had exhaustive endpoint time point three, and you collected from time point one, time point two, and time point three, and then you analyzed each time point, then you would divide that by each extract to get your DBT would be divided by three to get your AT for each extract. But if it was a single extract and you reduced it down, it'd just be the single DBT. Yeah. And, and I think both of those, I believe there are examples in Annex E when they calculate it, you'll see, you know, the number of extractions playing in. If you analyzed each one of them separate, they 
they split it across two into two. But um, but again, if you reduce it and concentrate it from a single pool of extract, then then that doesn't come into play. Mm -hmm. Which then does go to the other part of the question, Sherry, which is also should the same replicate, single, triplicate, duplicate, apply to NVR? And and again, my initial thought is if you determine that there's enough variability in the method being used or in the sample being tested, whereby you say, you know what, I do need triplicates or duplicates and a single replicate isn't going to be enough, then I don't see why that wouldn't apply to your NVR determination as well. Because you're basically saying there's variability. So you could have variability in NVR, just like you could have variability in your analytical um, study. So I guess from my point of view, I would treat NVR no different than the extractions I perform for my analytical. Um, so if I need to so get yeah. there too. So you're, you, you made a few comments there that I just want to elaborate on. You said, if you determine <laughs> that the method and test article, so somebody has to determine this. Like if I'm Joe manufacturer, how am I determining this? Am I working with somebody like Andy to say, here's my situation, here's our manufacturing process, here's my material. Can somebody help me determine that I'm okay with a single, I think this is going to be a really common question. How do I determine I'm okay with a single replicate or single sample versus duplicates, rep, triplicates, whatever the answer might be? I, I mean, Sorry, I'm ad-libbing, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think in expected. Terms, in terms of the, the, the standard, I mean, it, it basically paints the picture. You know, in some cases, materials will be inherently less variable because of their composition. Okay. That would probably... Like metal. Is a metal. Yeah. Okay. That's certified to a standard, and the yep. standard defines the composition of the metal. And okay. you only use certified metals in your device. So okay. I painted the picture right. of the easiest device. that Easiest one. I have a metal... I have a simple process where all I do is machine it and wash it, maybe. And so I'm safe there. Yeah, I, I think that's the easiest place to defend low variability and maybe a single replicate. Right. Okay, but so then you get into the world. What's of the other end of the spectrum? Okay. Plastic. <laughs> yes. Polymers. The variability in plastic is, is difficult to quantitate just because... A lot of times the suppliers of, of different polymeric materials will give, you know, basic compositions in their MSDSs or their, their SDSs to say, you know, this is 95% polypropylene or um, contains this, contains a antioxidant or generic definitions that doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what's in the composition, nor does it tell you, you know, residual monomers, UV absorbers added to it, mold release agents used. There's a lot of, of details they don't provide that ultimately becomes the, the responsibility of the, the manufacturer of the device. Right. Because they want to give those trade secrets out so that, you know, anybody can make, you know, their polymers. So in there relies, it, it becomes the, the variability Don was, was talking about is we don't know what's going to come out. We don't know, you know, what the extraction efficiencies are going to be. Is there going to be some type of degradation? You know, is there some un there's there's so many unknowns that it's hard to define you know what exactly is going to come out and what the results are and that kind of gets back to you know the part 18 and uh, indicating that you know during information gathering 
you have all the information needed to you know, evaluate the toxic, toxicological aspects of your device. And with polymers, a lot of times you don't because you, unless you're actually synthesizing that polymer and know exactly what's going on you know, with the reaction, with the byproducts, with the residual monomers, with everything that's added to it, it's all kind of a unknown. It's a black box. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I, I mean, this whole topic kind of spills over to the, one of the other questions we were going to talk about <laughs> concerning, which we might get to, yeah, what is the <laughs> meaning of low in the composition? Well, that's, what, yeah. So let's, that's, that's mm. what we're talking about because, <laughs> okay. You know, with all of this stuff that we talk about in terms of polymers and knowing that there is or is not variability in the polymer and that it's going to behave consistently when we test it the way we need to test it for extractables primarily. I think that's the main thing that we're talking about, even though there's, you know, compositional profiling, leachables, all that stuff in the standard too, but mainly we're talking extractables. We want, I think, all to believe that the variability of the data collected from a device, even made of plastic, made of polymers, would be inherently low because of all of the controls that we attempt to put in place or the manufacturer puts in place by sourcing the material from suppliers that you know have controls in place and can supply to the regulated product industry, whether it be food, drugs, cosmetics, or devices. But with that said, you know, with the way the standards worded, you know, to justify that single is good enough based on those controls might, again, might be hard for a regulator to necessarily accept without seeing data. Right. And the other thing okay. I think the standard, you know, plays into is, you know, you could use bench testing. And I mean, I've, I've made this claim before. Look, if we don't see, you know, if we have bench testing, physical performance data on the device, that's, you know, outside necessarily the scope of chemical characterization, but we have that and we show that it behaves consistently. Hence the reason we can market it as a device. Then that so should suggest that the variability is low and that might okay. work. <laughs> and that's the, that's the offer that the standard gives is that type right. of edge testing. And I guess it depends on the nature of the, the use of the device too. If it's an implant, it's going to be under more scrutiny than, than an externally communicating device with, you know, say less than 24 hours of contact. Sure. Yeah. Which gets to the underlying theme of the standard that's sometimes harder to, you know, put forth, you know, using the nature and duration of patient exposure to drive the level of detail that you need in chemical characterization. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a flow chart that I need to work with. <laughs> but, but I don't have it. Okay. Um, so let's anyway. let's switch from from materials. So one of the questions we specifically had uh, not materials, but switch from like polymers or metals. To solutions. One of the questions we had was specifically around applying the standard to a solution, like a contact solution. So walk us through that. How would you how would you do that? I guess I mean I'll start just focusing on the solution itself. Obviously, if it's a like saline-based solution, it's if, if, if something simple like that, um, or just you know, just a liquid product, you know, you're not going to extract. In most cases, I guess you could try to pull something out of a liquid, but it's not really extraction <laughs> anymore. It's anyhow. So it's another solution. I, I guess you could distill it, which kind of, but anyhow, we might, might break into another topic there that'll get us. <laughs> right. Um, but, anyways, if you have this liquid, I mean, as the manufacturer of that liquid, something like a lens solution, 
I would expect the manufacturer to understand the composition. Sure. And, and that that would be much easier to do for a solution like this than obviously a device made of five pieces of plastic. Right. So I would expect that it would be the compositional profiling process as stated in the standard flowchart too, and that you would then have MSDS sheets, SDS sheets, certifications to the materials, USP grade, chemical X, Y, and Z, talking about their purity so that you should have a very good understanding and control over what goes into the composition of your solution. Yeah, and I think that's important. Like when you use USP grade materials, they are defined standards to determine, you know, what residual chlorides are or, or what heavy metals may be existing in it and provide various, that USP has various monographs to um, describe the purity of, of different substances. And if you buy USP grade for you know, this type of application, um, you should know all the different impurities and what the, the, the composition of the materials that you're uh, putting into solution are. I think another thing to, to kind of consider as well, though, would be the packaging of this um, solution. Um, mm. Yes, you, you know what's all going into the solution itself, but you know during that shelf life, if it's in you know, some type of polyethylene container, you know what's in that polyethylene container that's going to come out over you know time. Um, so that's another thing that you need to you know address. And you know, the new Part 18 guidance actually has an example of leachability studies that can be performed on you know substances that um, are contained in devices like uh, saline uh, bags, and that you know if you know. If you know the intended application is storage of a saline solution, you can use that you know bag or or contact solution container and and age it over a period of time, either accelerated or real time, and analyze the solution afterwards uh, to see if there are any extractables that may came out come out and then be exposed to the patient. Okay, good. I mean that's a great point. I think the solution itself is one thing, but that container certainly has a different type of evaluation. So. Here's a question about the AET calculation. How do you calculate the number of devices used in used for a chronic device that can be used during someone's lifetime? So when making those those calculations, working with a laboratory, or if you're you're doing this at an internal laboratory? This was actually one of the questions that kind of spawned the discussion between me and Andy that kind of led us to, you know, we should probably record this type of concept um, because... I was certainly looking at it in one way and then didn't think about something. And then Andy was like, oh, yeah, but you got to think about this. And mm. so, you know, it gets into the world of fun acronyms as, as we, you know, always. Oh, gosh. Uh, Talk slowly. Speak slowly if you're using a bunch of acronyms. <laughs> AET, DBT, NDR. Well, yeah, yeah, well, there you go. There's the two yep. acronyms. So it's not that many. So your analytical evaluation threshold, AET. I could say them. It doesn't mean I know what they are. Uh, that's <laughs> And, and your dose base threshold, which goes into the AET calculation. Okay. But I mean, if we start with the AET and the number of devices in the formula, in the standard, the number of devices are, it's part of the formula. But if you have a device that's used for a chronic exposure, a long-term exposure, a permanent exposure, <laughs> greater than 30 days. So any um, type of permanent implant, like valve yeah. or stent or, or, or knee or hip or yeah something okay I mean, it could be any type of device but if per the ifu i think this is important too per the ifu in a single therapy that might be repeated or might not how many devices would the patient be exposed to so you know we're not talking 
in my example, I'm not talking about a person that gets a stent today and then 15 years from now gets another stent. Right. You know, that can't be anticipated. Well, might be anticipated. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I kept on smoking. Uh, whatever. That could might but but you know, that's not what we're talking about. But we're we're talking more on, you know, actually in the IFU, it says on on the first day of treatment, use up to two devices a day. And then seven days later, use two more devices. And then seven days later, use two, something like that, where it's the, yeah. the, that. And I think for the AET, in terms of the number of devices that you plug into that formula, you have to think about the number of devices that get used per day, because the limits that could be used in the AET are on a per day basis. And how you evaluate the data ends up being on a per day basis. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, one part of it. But as you do that, you can't lose sight of the repeat use in the cumulative exposure, then driving your duration of exposure to where you would then maybe pick a different DBT limit. That, again, depends on the DBT that you're selecting, whether it be for genotox or systemic tox. Right. So ISO 21276 kind of provides limits based upon a theoretical, uh, the threshold of, of toxicological concern or TTC. Um, and it's, it's this um, concept that was originally developed for food products uh, that established, a, that reviewed a bunch of different chemicals and determined um, at what level is it, is it safe. And they, they based it upon a class of, of compounds as being, you know, class three is most toxic, class one, class one is, is non-toxic. And they additionally came up with additional levels for chemicals that are of uh, genotoxic or, or carcinogenetic concern. And the TTC uh, ISO document uh, was based upon the M7 guidance, and it established uh, stepwise approaches for limits based upon the duration of, of patient exposure to the device. So the limits are based upon like less than 30 days is 120 micrograms, and then it goes on all the way to, you know, greater than 10 years is, is 1.5 micrograms per, per day exposure. But an interesting um, concept that was, was brought up in the, in the New Party 18 document um, is in Annex E, where it's talking about the AET uh, levels to set up for determining what your DBT is. Um, in example, C.2 indicates that, you know, if you do an exhaustive extraction, the exhaustive extraction is supposed to represent the lifetime extractables for that device. And if that is the case and you, you've, you have a lifetime exposure of the extractables in a single day, then you can use a limit that's less than 30 days, according to that TTC ISO document, which would be 120 micrograms per device, um, which is completely different from, you know, the uh, current thinking that, you know, if it is a lifetime device, then you should use the limits of 1.5 micrograms per day and would significantly drive up the, the uh, acceptable limits for your AT calculations. So instead of 1.5, it'd be 120, which is almost 100 times more and would require much more much less devices and require less efforts from the analysts to analyze anything below uh, the AET concept. I think, I think a key thing in making that 120 number in that scenario stick is that you have exhaustive extraction. Right. And like, if I, I think that the values from the TTC document would still be uh, applicable if you did leachability studies or, or, or exaggerated studies 
and what you know what the daily exposure is, and you can use you know those limits based upon you know what the actual clinical use of your device is and what the exposure is. But I think this concept that was presented in the document is very interesting. I'm, mm. I'm curious to see you know what the regulatory thoughts on this are, or if they're going to accept this type of approach. Because um, traditionally, as of right now, when you do uh, your toxicological risk assessment, they usually want you to use that exhaustive extra- extraction results and determine that that is the per day exposure for the lifetime of the device instead of the actual lifetime amount of those extractables in one single day. Interesting. I pretend like I understand half of what you said, but I'm sure there's lots of people that do understand it. Don obviously understood. Just put your hand on your chin and tilt your head sideways. Hmm, I was doing that. I was doing that. I was doing that. (laughs) Shake your head a couple times. Good stuff. Yeah. And just go, yeah, yeah. And either Um, or disagreement. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think we'll, we'll do maybe one more here. We've gotten feedback that people like the short episodes. So we'll try to keep this one from going three hours long. So we were talking about compositional information. It says, when do you know that you have a comprehensive enough compositional data to assert that there is an acceptable level of toxicological risk? If you have complete information on raw materials, like with MSDSs, and confirmation of all potential contact materials, is that enough? I think that's a pretty, pretty loaded question there that a lot of people have. It's like the slippery slope of the world of MSDS sheets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this has been such a slippery slope that it made its way into our training series that we do um, right. as, as a few example slides to show the just the huge difference in quality of MSDS sheets. You can have some that are good and some that are so secretive that they almost offer no benefit. <laughs> you have no idea what you're looking at. Besides, there might not be any hazards in there. The whole company. It has it has things and yeah. stuff. Yeah, it has things and stuff. I mean, if they they do their job correctly, they should at least reveal the hazardous substances that would be present in the product. Yep. I mean, kind of protecting the people that would handle, you know, the the, the chemicals. I guess that kind of goes to the point of how do you know what's hazardous? Yeah. Because those <laughs> True. Make poison. So you know if. This extractable is coming out of the device and in large quantities, then how do you know that isn't going to affect the patient? Maybe hazardous for like irritation and respiratory or, or whatnot, but not necessarily all the different endpoints of concern. Yeah. And that kind of the difference between the world of regulating a chemical and, you know, regulating this device in terms of how this material gets used and the level of detail you need to do what you need to do versus what they need to again, put on an MSTS sheet. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say that it, that it's always not going to be enough, but I tend to think that it, it's going to be rare that an MSDS sheet gives you everything you need to know in terms of composition. Yeah, I think it goes back to the, you know, the previous question where we answered where you're not going to have all the information that is needed to have the exact composition synthesis of a polymer. But if you know what the patient contact is, if it's a you know skin contacting device, is it really necessary to have all the information? Do you need to just have the base information that you know there is no hazards with this material? Um, it's made of basically polypropylene, um, so the risk there for you know, just skin contact would be extremely low. But if that same device would be implanted, that would pretty much trigger you know exhaustive extractions, unless of course you've used that material on a previous device and you already have that information. 
so that you can address all the different hazards and risks based on what it's composed of and what's going to come out of it. Excellent. You know, Don, I'm going to ask one more just because. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, you know, I do this. Through and you found one <laughs> no, no, no. This is my own. Well, actually, I think somebody asked this, but in a little different way. I want to talk about legacy products. Like there's always going to be question to us and, and people are going to have for their laboratories. I've got these products on the market. There's a new standard now. Do I need to go back and do something? And I think we get this question a lot, whether it's this standard or other standards. How do I evaluate current legacy products using new standards? Do I need to? And and I know this is probably it's going to be specific. You're going to get an it depends answer, but uh, I'd like to hear your I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Living in the world of it depends. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as soon as a standard gets released, granted, you know it's not harmonized. Obviously, it's not recognized by FDA yet. Of course, you know we'll expect those things to happen in the future at some point, some sometime. But I I mean, if one wants to say that their data are in line are with the state of the art standard, then I think that's where you're going to be headed eventually. And I think I would start with the first step in the process and start in, in terms of making sure that my file has compositional information as much as I can. Okay. It might be a lot of qualitative stuff. Yep. But the more qualitative stuff I can gather, the more, the, the better I would feel. And I'm not talking about putting into your tech file a bunch of MSDS sheets and listing of materials, because I don't think that meets what the standard wants. I think you have to take that information and show evidence that you've incorporated into your overall biological evaluation. And I think that gets back to even retro fitting your files with evidence that you've reviewed and thought about biocompatibility, considering the new requirements of Part 18 new requirements of part one from 2018 and making sure that you have all of it put together showed that you've considered all this and then infusing into it, you know, whatever biocompatibility data you may have and that you assemble all of that in, in, in some type of biocompatibility evaluation document, whether you call it an assessment or report, whatever you want to call it, so that it is showing evidence that you did some work, you looked at all the information, and determine whether or not you still have enough to say that your product is safe. I mean, in that process, if you find something that says, you know what, we should investigate this further and we don't have enough information, then maybe you go out and collect and generate information like extractables if you found the need. Sure. I mean, my knee-jerk reaction wouldn't be, oh, skip to the flowchart that says go do extractables testing. Unless I said I needed it. Sure. I don't know. That's just my thought. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think you know, having a good clinical history, having this much information in your in your file, you know, having those adverse report events um, you know, listed, described, analyzed, determined that, you know, you do have a safe history. Um, there's there's not really that many complaints, along with, you know, developing all the information that you you do have on the materials, different changes you've had over the years. Any type right. of biocompatibility done by the, the suppliers themselves of the materials is helpful as well. Um, you know, if, if they have some kind of medical grade claim of, you know, is it class six or if they've done certain tests or if it's approved for, you know, implantation use or, or however the uses are that, that you may use the device in, 
I think it, it's it's important to to have that information to you know back up the claims that your your device is safe. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you. I think we will uh, we'll close up there. We're we're about kind of at a, at a good length here of time to to stop with. I do want to to remind folks what we were discussing today is the questions that came out of a webinar that we hosted on February fourth. And so, if you'd like to listen to that webinar or read all of the questions and answers that were were submitted, you can go to www.namsa.com slash webinar episode, and that link will take you directly to the webinar page where you can then get into the recording. And um, we can go from there. So Andy, thank you for joining us. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't too painful. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you'll come back. Maybe you'll come back someday. (laughs) And Don, as always, good times. Thanks uh, Thanks for being here and doing this. And we will catch you all next time. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.